3: Hello friends, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Roundtable. It's Friday, May 1, already seven weeks into the coronavirus pandemic, and we seem to be going in two different directions at the same time. Every day, the numbers get worse. As of today, this morning, there are... 1,095,000 cases of the virus reported in the United States, some 63,700 people have died from the disease, and over 30 million Americans, one out of every six American workers, is out of a job. Yet, at the same time, this week, a dozen or more states lifted shelter-at-home restrictions, allowed people to get out of their homes, and restaurants to reopen, was that too risky, or the right thing to do? And what impact is handling of coronavirus having on the 2020 political scene? On that political front, in just a, few, just a few moments ago, Joe Biden finally responded to sexual assault allegations leveled against him by former staffer Tara Reid. It never happened, period. He told Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe. And former Republican, now Libertarian, Congressman Justin Amash says he's going to run for president as an independent. So much to talk about. Let's get right to this week's panel. Joining us from BuzzFeed congressional reporter, Addie Baird. Hello, Addie. Good to see you. Hi, well, Bill. Good to hear you. We are, of course, <laughs> uh, round tabling, if I can coin a verb, from home via online technology here. Uh, And Scott Wong joins us, senior staff writer for The Hill. Hello, Scott.
4: Hey, Bill. Good to be with you virtually.
3: (laughs) Thank you. And let's start out with uh, today's breaking news. Just a few minutes ago on Morning Joe, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden appeared for the very first time uh, himself addressing allegations of sexual assault now by former staffer Tara Reid. Mika Brzezinski uh, levels the question at him Here's that exchange.
1: Did you sexually assault Tara Reid?
3: No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't, it never happened. Tara Reid is coming forward in the glaring lights. To use your words, should we not start off with the presumption that the essence of what she's talking about is real? She says you sexually assaulted her. Look, from the very beginning, I've said believing women means taking the woman's claims seriously. When she steps forward and, and then vet it, look into it. This, this, that, that's true in this case as well. Women have a right to be heard, and, to, and the press should rigorously investigate claims they make. I'll always uphold that principle. But in the end, in every case, the truth is what matters. And in this case, the truth is the claims are false. Addy. Good enough? Does that mean the end of the story for Joe Biden?
0: Oh, it definitely doesn't mean the end of the story for Joe Biden. I think that some of the kind of conventional wisdom about Joe Biden recently has been that he's protected by the fact that we are in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. So Joe Biden is just at his house and he isn't facing reporters every day. And he has had weeks where this has been in the bloodstream of the news cycle and he hasn't had to respond to it. I think that Joe Biden would have actually benefited and, and you know been able to kind of get through this news cycle, so to say, if he were facing reporters in scrums, if he were on the campaign trail, if he had to really address it head on. I don't think that one cable news appearance, Is going to satisfy um, the people who want to see the papers. I don't think it's going to satisfy people in his own party. It's certainly not going to satisfy Trump and his allies, who will use this as um, you know that that will absolutely bring this up over and over again through the November election. So no, this is really just the beginning. He's finally addressed it. We're we're just getting started.
3: Uh, And Scott, the other bit of breaking news in the interview is that the vice president called upon the National Archives to release any uh, record of a sexual assault claim that would have been filed by Tara Reid at that time with uh, whatever Senate office handles personnel problems like, like that. Um, uh, does that go, lead toward clearing the record for Joe Biden? And what do you know about that office?
4: Well, I think this office has had multiple iterations. At that time, 27 years ago, it was called the Office of Fair Employment Practices, according to Biden. And he's, you know, he's come under enormous scrutiny from Republicans who have been calling on him to release his records, his uh, Senate papers that have been stored at the University of Delaware. These papers were slated to have already been released. And uh, in fact, that date got pushed back. Republicans say that there should be some kind of record of Ms. Reid's complaint in these University of Delaware records. Biden today says that's not true, that these, any sort of personnel complaint would have been filed with this Office of Fair Employment Practices, which would have been sent after his Senate tenure over to the National Archives. He's now calling on the archives to do a search. Of any such records from Miss Reed, and to to hand those over to the press. Uh, but I think you know this also opens up more questions about why Biden is not releasing the the overall tranche of of his Senate records at the University of Delaware. There must be thousands of thousands of papers, and for a man who's running for president of the United States, these eventually will become public papers. And I think it's opened up a lot of questions. And I think you're going to start to see more questions from the press turn uh, to these University of Delaware papers, which were a lot of speeches and policy papers. But um, Biden today in his interview seemed pretty reluctant to be handing those over until uh, until election day.
3: Uh, yes. The point that he made, of course, was the, the these papers, the senatorial papers include lots of private conversations with the former president uh with other world leaders uh and there's a lot of stuff in there that uh if all of that were released it would make a uh, easy fodder perhaps for the trump campaign uh, to take it out of context and use against him in a political campaign which does not however scott as you suggested um resolve the issue then of why not just ask the University of Delaware to release anything that they might have that related to Tara Reid only and keep all the rest uh uh classif- not classified, but at least uh unsealed at the at the present time. So Addie, um is there and a lot of people have raised this issue, remembering uh Brett Kavanaugh just two years ago, uh Joe Biden, one of those saying that uh Christine Blasey Ford. She came forward. Uh, She should be believed. The essence of what she said should be taken as the truth uh, and then investigated. Uh, Is there now a double standard on Joe Biden's part and on the part of some of the women who are supporting him, treating Tara Reid differently than they treated Christine Blasey Ford?
0: I, I honestly, I do believe that there is, and I was struck yesterday when um, Nancy Pelosi was asked uh, at her press conference about Tara Reed. She said, "I love the Me Too movement, but there's also due process," and it reminded me so much of the Kavanaugh um, hearings because Democrats were saying, "Of course, there's due process, but." This is not a court of law. We are deciding whether this man belongs on the Supreme Court. And that is exactly what I thought of yesterday. No one is no one is charging Joe Biden with sexual assault. Of course, there is due process when you are charged in a court of law. People are deciding whether Joe Biden should be the president of the United States. And so it is, I think, interesting to see Democrats have to... Um, Reckon with their own... With their own... It takes takes as too light a word but but you kind of know what I mean it, it is interesting to see them have to address these allegations with someone that they would like to have in a very powerful position um and and in some ways I absolutely do think that there is a double standard there and and I agree with you bill absolutely the essence of what women say when they come forward should be believed and then their claims should be investigated thoroughly by reporters uh, that is happening with terrorism read. Right. She had, you know, the New York Times looked into her claims, other journalists look into their into her claims. She is, has spoken with some of my colleagues um, at BuzzFeed. You know, it absolutely I, I think it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to say flatly. But yes, there is a double standard. Democrats have really lined up and, um, you know, lined up behind Joe Biden in a way that it it's hard to imagine. Um that it's hard to imagine that they would be comfortable with Republicans doing this. I mean, listen, well, Democrats called it out when when Republicans lined up behind Trump, who has a history of uh, alleged sexual assault as well, and they're lining up behind Joe Biden.
3: Yeah, for the record, in fact, I want to get to that in just a minute. There are 21 women who have uh, right. uh, accused the president of uh, of sexual right. assault. But Addie, I just want to be sure, I mean, because Joe Biden said that this morning, and you would agree with him, right, that yes, every woman should have the right to come forward, and every woman should be believed, and then what she says should be vetted. he used the word or investigated uh, and um and then whatever happens is based on the facts.
0: right. Correct? And part of that, right? Absolutely. Right. And part of that would mean that Joe Biden needs to release those papers. I think that sure. you know we we need more information about where this complaint could be. We need more information about what could be in it. We need to look at these papers. And frankly, you know, I, I understand that that Joe Biden doesn't want to release you know all of these papers. But what? Like, I think that that is going to be the only thing that satisfies well, probably nothing will satisfy people, but that I think would would be a step. If you release all these papers and people can look at them and, and they are, uh, you know, in the public eye, that's how you can truly start to quote unquote vet this woman.
3: Uh, and if I think it could be established that uh, there was nothing in the University of Delaware papers, nor nothing at the archives um, that Joe Biden could say, okay, move on. And Exactly. Both- and most people would sorry, be ready sorry.
0: to. Yeah. I was just going to say exactly. And, and one of the things that's, that's interesting is Joe Biden saying, oh, well, it's not in the Senate papers. It's actually, you know, in this different office. It's in the archives. It's, I think that, you know, people are going to start saying we need all of them.
3: Right. Uh, so, Scott, um, back to the president, uh, who will talk about anything, anytime, it seems. Uh, he was asked about Joe Biden yesterday. Um, and uh, Donald Trump sort of identifies with the former vice president.
1: I don't know anything about it. I, I don't know uh, exactly. I think he should respond. You know, it's, uh, it could be false accusations. I know all about false accusations. I've been falsely charged numerous times. Uh, and uh, there is such a thing. Uh, if you look at uh, if you look at Brent Kavanaugh, there's an outstanding man. He was falsely charged. So, But I don't know. I can't speak for Biden. I can only say that I think he should respond. I think he should answer them. Uh,
3: so, Scott, uh, at the very least, this is a little awkward issue for Donald Trump.
4: Yeah, you could say that. Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump is not in a position here to take the moral uh, high ground because he himself has been accused on multiple occasions of things as serious as rape and uh, in his top Supreme Court choice, uh, Brett Kavanaugh in 2018, of course, uh, underwent and uh, faced similar sexual assault allegations. And so Trump it was in a very difficult position in being asked about Joe Biden. I mean, I think a normal candidate would have been in a position to pounce on Biden uh, and these types of allegations. But Trump is, is in no position to do so. He's going to leave it, I think, to some of his Republican allies, the RNC, uh, Republicans in Congress, other surrogates to do the dirty work and really go after Biden and, and try to bloody him up. But Trump you know, looks like a, a total hypocrite if he is the one uh, drawing focus to these allegations.
3: Well, and um, several people, in fact, uh, Joe Scarborough did today, drew the um, parallel to 2016. Uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton was trying to use the sexual, allega- did, did use the sexual assault allegations against Donald Trump in her campaign, but she was somewhat handicapped by the fact that people kept bringing up the charges against her husband, and the facts against her husband with Monica Lewinsky, um, uh, and um, and Donald Trump even bringing these women, five or six women who would accuse Bill Clinton of sexual assault, uh, to one of the debates. Now here we are in 2020, where Donald Trump might have be handicapped from using this issue against Joe Biden because he's got these things in his own past, right? Addy, you've got a Again, awkward may be the word.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It is, like like you said, awkward is one word for it. That said, um, Trump doesn't have a lot of shame or a lot of self-awareness. And so um, it would not surprise me at all if he takes on um, these allegations and, and hits Biden over them. Uh, and absolutely, he will look like a hypocrite. And frankly, I think that everything that we have seen for the past four or five years proves that that doesn't matter.
3: <laughs> right. Uh, it's almost like yeah, the Teflon, Teflon president again. Now, I want to move on uh, to the latest from the uh, Biden campaign. But first, uh, welcome to our roundtable this morning. Joining me and Addie Baird and Scott Wong, uh, Richard Fowler, Fox News contributor and host of the Richard Fowler Show. Richard, good to have you joining us.
2: It's good to be here with you, Bill.
3: So we've been talking about uh, Joe Biden and his interview with uh, On Morning Joe about the allegations uh, leveled against him by Tara Reid. Uh, Interesting and curious. That this very same week that Biden is dealing with this, his campaign, uh, he, the candidate, created a special committee to vet uh, the possible nominees for vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side. And of course, all of those possible choices are women, because Joe Biden says, I want a woman to be my running mate. Um Scott, let's go back to you. Who are the frontrunners? Who do you think the frontrunners are?
4: Yeah, I really think this is uh, this choice is going to come down to Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. And I think uh, the Biden people and, and this new vetting team are going to have to decide uh, which, which is going to energize Democrats the most. I mean, do you want a, a minority woman on the ticket like Kamala Harris or... Uh, a progressive hero like Elizabeth Warren. And I think more and more people are are looking towards Warren uh, simply because she's somebody that can energize uh, progressives, energize that wing of the party that Democrats need to turn out uh, in a big way in, in a general election. Uh, You know, and and I think he's Biden would get some cover from the Congressional Black Caucus just this week. You heard Jim Clyburn, who played a major role in giving Mm -hmm. Biden momentum uh, to to win the win the uh, Democratic, presumptive Democratic nomination. Uh, He said he didn't necessarily think that Biden needed to pick an African-American on the ticket. So I think he's going to get a little bit of cover from uh, some Congressional Black Caucus allies and and perhaps uh, lean towards Elizabeth Warren.
3: So, Richard, how important is it that the vice presidential nominee be an African-American woman?
2: I think it's going to be very interesting no matter who he picks, but I think picking an African-American in this moment will matter to African-American voters because African-American voters saved the Joe Biden campaign, right? I mean, if you think about South Carolina, if you think about all the states that happened after that, this was based on the back of African-Americans um, that sort of revived this campaign and sort of pushed Joe Biden to this nomination, which I think will give him some— they, he, there is some incentive in picking an African-American vice presidential candidate, knowing that he has to turn out this same base of people again in November. Given that you know we're also dealing with the fact that any any type any type of voting in November will be emptied by the coronavirus,
3: and Addy, um, assuming you're not on the list, um, who who's at the top? How do you see it?
0: Well, I will also just uh, note. I think, uh, like you mentioned. It's very interesting that this search is being led by Chris Dodd uh, and, you know, the same week that Joe Biden is really having to address these allegations from Tara Reid. Uh, Chris Dodd also has um, a history of alleged sexual assault and enabling uh, sexual predators. And it just seems like a really uh, interesting choice this week. Um, but to your question uh i i'm with scott i think it's it's probably coming down to kamala harris and elizabeth warren and it is interesting the ways that uh we we see the exact same fights that the democratic party has been having for four or five years playing out in in this choice um stacy abrams has also been uh pretty openly campaigning for vice president but i think at this point um she's a pretty unlikely pick
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh i noticed neither of you no no one of you mentioned uh Amy Klobuchar, uh, whom I also thought was a, or still think is a possible front runner, too. Would you all agree Amy would be a serious I, I, contender? I
4: would, put, I would not put her in a, in a front runner status. Really, I, think she, yeah. I thought she did a, a fine job, but Biden already has those sort of uh, working class uh, credentials that will appeal to to Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Right? I mean, he's the son of Scranton. Pennsylvania, so I don't think he necessarily needs uh, those same kind of credentials from Amy Klob- Klobuchar. Although I thought she ran a fine campaign, um, and I, I also will say to the to the uh, Af- appeal to the African American uh, question, uh, you know, Joe Biden energized African Americans. I think more than anyone else on that debate stage, and so uh, you know, imagine Biden up there with president obama and uh and michelle obama i think uh, african americans would get pretty pretty excited would, would not necessarily need uh to see somebody on that ticket
3: okay on that point let's take a quick break here on the bill press pod and our round table uh continue our conversation and get back to the coronavirus that we are all dealing with And our roundtable today brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union under the leadership of President Mark Perrone. The men and women of the UFCW, we think of them as uh, the clerks and all the people who serve us in our retail grocery stores, but so, and they are, and they are on the front lines in this pandemic uh, every single day. They're also on the front lines in our meat packing plants where hundreds and hundreds of workers have caught the uh, coronavirus uh, virus disease, and also where dozens and dozens have died. It is immoral, I believe, and so do the leaders of the UFCW, uh, to force these plants to reopen, to force these employees to go back to work without major changes in working conditions to keep those workers safe. Check out their website. We salute them for all the hard work they're doing here. Uh, in the middle of this pandemic, check out their website for more at ufcw.org.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. a good one in the Coast Guard, we think
1: it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit gocoastguard.com to learn more.
3: And we're back with uh, today's roundtable. Addie Bear joins us from Buzzfeed, Scott Wong from, from The Hill, and Richard Fowler, host of The Richard Fowler Show. On the coronavirus, again, the numbers are striking over well over a million cases now in the United States. Over 63,000 died from the disease. Uh, And yet, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, says the Trump administration basically should get the Medal of Honor for the great job that they have done responding to this crisis Here's Jared Kushner.
1: We're on the other side of the medical aspect of this, and I think that we've uh, achieved all the different milestones that are needed. So the, gov- the government, federal government, rose to the challenge, and this is a great success story. Uh, and, and I think that that's really you know what needs to be told. What you'll see in May, uh, as the states are reopening now, is may will be a transition month you'll see uh, a lot of states starting to phase in the different uh, reopening based on the safety guidelines that uh, president trump outlined on may on april 19th and i think you'll see by june a lot of the country should be back to normal and the hope is, is that by, by july uh, the country's really rocking again
3: really rocking again so richard uh, it's a great victory and it's time to reopen and get back to normal is that the way you see it
2: no, I don't see it that way at all. I will give the, the Trump administration credit for the move yesterday to protect some of our senior citizens, but overall what we say about the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus is it's been pretty dismal. And I think you have something to compare that this to. I mean think about the Ebola outbreak that happened under Barack Obama where three people caught Ebola and the and the president did every president Obama that was did everything in his power to make sure it didn't spread beyond that. That didn't happen here. And that has everything to do with a lack of leadership from this president. And I think beyond that, I think what you're also seeing happening across this country is in the void of the lack of presidential leadership, what you're seeing is uh, our mayors and governors really sort of take the leadership role, whether it be Governor Gretchen Whitmer in, in Michigan or Mayor Keisha, uh, Lance Knight, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta right? And I think these women, uh, to go back to your last segment, are probably folks who are already on the vice president's shortlist for his vice presidential pick, but it speaks to the fact that there's no leadership in this White House. And reopening the government and this notion, this idea that we're going to go back to a normal, where everything's just going to be back to normal, like the COVID-19 did not happen, I think is unrealistic. Uh, and also speaks to not what's happening, doesn't speak to what's happening in the news. What we see in the news is a lot of Big bo- A lot of retailers like Neiman Marcus mm-hmm. and TJ Maxx and Marshalls, uh, Bed Bath and Beyond are struggling, right? So some of those workers might not return to jobs because they will have no jobs to return to. And this is everything to do with the fact that the Trump administration is slow to act. They were slow to provide testing and they were looking for praise when they should have been looking for more solutions to this coronavirus uh
3: and Addie to Richard's point, if you were living in Alaska today, you'd be you 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 can go out to a restaurant as long as you stay uh ten feet from uh anybody else uh, ten feet apart from anybody else in georgia uh you can go out and get a haircut, get a new tattoo or you can go bowling uh in Texas you can go out to a movie as long as the movie theater is only fifty percent full um Governors moving a little too fast to open up or is it important to get the economy going back, getting back?
0: Look, I would give anything to go get a haircut and a tattoo (laughs) and dinner right now. I like, believe me, I would. However, um, everything that public health experts are telling us is that it's too soon. And there has been some really good reporting. Um, One of my colleagues, Dan Vergano, um, wrote a great story about this recently about how, you know, Until we have a vaccine, Mm. it is not possible for us to go back to our regular lives. And especially uh, right now, uh, experts say as it gets warmer in the summer, the virus will probably let up and then it will come back in the fall. Um, and, And it I think will be easy for us in in that in between to say oh let's go back to normal life let's get you know let's get back into restaurants let's get haircuts let's get tattoos but it's not safe until we have a vaccine and 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 if we go to restaurants if we go get haircuts if we gather in groups however small we are going to start spreading it again we saw after china relaxed some social distancing guidelines that there was an increase in cases not that long after People are going to be put at risk by, uh, by relaxing these guidelines so soon. And, and so, no, it's, it's not a good idea. It's moving too quickly right now.
3: But, Scott, yesterday the president said, uh, speaking to reporters in the Oval Office, speaking to the vaccine, that by January there are going to be 300 million doses of the vaccine so that everybody in America can get the vaccine by January.
4: That seem, Yeah, that, those numbers seem pretty high. I, I think uh, it'll be very difficult to, for them to produce and, and distribute that many doses. The president has said a lot of uh, things that have turned out to be untrue. And uh, I think, you know, you're seeing the people around him uh, try to tamp down the president, try to restrict the president. Uh, he's been holding these daily COVID briefings with his, his COVID team. Uh, in the White House. And uh, those have not gone terribly well. We've seen uh, his polls uh, decline quite a bit. Uh, people do not have trust that he's handling this situation well. In fact, just last week, as, as we've, uh, we've all noticed, that the president talked about uh, possibly treating COVID-19 with disinfectants, inhaling it or in, in, uh, injecting it somehow. Please don't do that. Um, You know, uh, (laughs) and and so you're seeing the president really struggling, I think, continuing to struggle with how he is responding to to this crisis. And uh, and and so, you know, as your other guests mentioned, it's been left to the governors and, and local mayors to try to figure out what to do. And that's why we've seen this sort of patchwork of policies across the country just today uh, Texas is going to open up its businesses. Georgia tried to do it uh, last week um, to, to some some effect, but um, you know I think what's re- we're really going to start to watch for is will the cases once some of these states start opening up will the cases continue to rise? Will the ca- will the hospitals be overrun with COVID patients? And what happens to you know through a political lens? What happens to some of these politicians? Poll numbers. Uh, Governor Kemp in Georgia has seen his has seen his polls go completely underwater after uh, his handling of reopening businesses there. So let's watch and see what happens next.
3: All right. In the meantime, uh, while even in the states that have opened up somewhat, there are still restrictions on uh, gatherings of people more than ten, of uh, of getting close to anybody is still supposed to keep your social distancing, wear a mask. And yet, in light of all of that, the Senate is coming back to Washington next week in session. Mitch McConnell says it's important that they be there and they can do it safely. Uh, particularly, Addy and Scott, you spend a lot of time roaming the halls of the Senate. Can the Senate, with all of the staffers, all of the hangers on, all of the lobbyists, can the Senate operate safely in the middle of this coronavirus? Addy, you go first.
0: Um, short answer no, they can't. Um the the um House physician said yesterday that they don't even have enough tests to test every senator. The average age of the Senate is about sixty-two, um, putting them squarely in a high risk um in a high risk sort of zone um for the coronavirus like you said they're also um bringing with them you don't just have a hundred senators you have dozens of staffers you have um you know you have the pages you have the people who uh you know man the gallery it's too many people and and that is the fundamental thing that we are learning from experts. The biggest issue the biggest uh you know the biggest um places that the virus can spread is people in closed areas together in larger groups. Um, I think it's going to be quite dangerous frankly and um there were some some house members originally, the house was supposed to come back as well, and then um, the house leadership decided against it. And originally, you know, before before they decided to call off uh, the the house coming together, members were really really upset um, about about leadership calling them all together. And the house is, uh, you know, almost five times as big as the senate. But on either either chamber, it's just too many people.
3: Uh, What do you think, Scott? I mean, I don't spend a lot of time there, but. You know, I I see those corridors in the House office buildings and in the Congress. You know, it's safe. Social distancing doesn't work in those quarters.
4: Things would need to be changed dramatically. In fact, they have been over the past few weeks. There have been fewer reporters, fewer, almost almost no staffers. So lawmakers are coming in basically, uh, uh, you know, to the office themselves just for votes uh, things really would have to be dialed back. The, the House, the Capitol physician in talking to lawmakers this past week uh, sort of laid out what that would all look like. I mean, things as basic as the salad bar in the cafeteria, you wouldn't be able to, everyone wouldn't be able to have a free-for-all at the salad bar. It would be manned by, uh, you know, one person. I mean, th- things would look incredibly different. I don't think you would ha- you would see lobbyists or constituents having meetings on the Hill. That would all be done virtually. Um, yeah, the, the real fear is that uh, with all of these lawmakers traveling back and forth to their districts, they're bringing the virus uh, back into the Capitol. They're infecting other members who are then traveling back to their districts and then infecting family members and other constituents. And and it's a vicious cycle. And in fact, you heard lawmakers talk about, you know, last week traveling to DCA airport just here outside of Washington. And uh, they were saying they were shocked that that TSA uh, officers were not even wearing masks. So you can see how, how easily this virus could spread. Uh, not um, just among the overall population, but among lawmakers.
3: So, Richard, let me ask you to uh, wrap it up for us here uh, with one aspect, uh, not the most important aspect, but one aspect of the coronavirus is the political impact on 2020, um, which could have some reverberations at the congressional level, the Senate level, and certainly at the presidential level. Um, do Do you agree that it's going to be a major issue, if not the major issue in 2020?
2: Uh, yes, this will be the major voting issue in twenty twenty, and I think it comes down to three things for the American people who will be going to the polls in just a couple months from now. One, how are they? How are them? How are they and their family doing health wise? Two, how and they are their family doing economic wise? And three, what's the sense? What's the feeling in their community about some sort of return to normalcy? So, is in a world where there's a second wave in the world where you know, they're, go, they're used to going to this store or that store to get goods and services, and those stores are no longer available. All of those will impact how folks will show up at the voting polls, uh, and I think that's going to be the determinant of what wins this election. Um, and it's going to be based on the president's performance. How well did Donald Trump and Republicans do to ensure the safety, the health, and the economic, and the economic vitality of Amer- of the American people? Uh, and I think a lot of right now, if that election were to happen today, I don't think it would be a good election for the for the current president. But, but with that being said, and as we've seen with this coronavirus from the beginning of the outbreak and the beginning of this pandemic, that every day changes, every day is different. Right,
3: Andy Baird, Scott Wong, and Richard Fowler. Great conversation, guys. Thanks so much for being here today. Uh, but we don't don't let you go without a. Uh, just asking you what really caught your attention this week we call it the favorite story of the week something that uh, at least you stopped and um, either had a chuckle about or took very seriously or said oh man wow this is something um addy let's start off with you what what's your favorite story
0: so my favorite story of the week was a Washington Post story. Um, the headline on it was they got married in the middle of the friendliest street in town and all the neighbors came to help. And <laughs> it was just the loveliest, most beautiful story about a couple um, not far from where you and I live in the neighborhood, Bill, um, a, who got married in the middle of the street and all of their neighbors came what out of their street? houses. What it's street? Um, The street was, hang on, let me pull it up. I don't remember. And now I'm hitting the paywall on the post.
3: (laughs) (laughs) but
0: um it's it's right over here most beautiful street
3: most beautiful street in the world maybe east capitol street i don't know just maybe (laughs)
0: um no actually i think it's a little bit of a smaller one at any Uh, rate all the neighbors came out of the house and helped them um get married and it was just so touching and there was uh just the most lovely lovely write-up of it in the post um and it was absolutely my favorite story it was so sweet and comforting and beautiful and i feel like we're kind of missing that um, <laughs> right now. <laughs> it, it's
3: it's good to see those positive human interest stories uh, at this time, because sort of we need them. Uh, Richard, what caught your attention?
2: So the story that caught my attention um, was a story. Well, it, it's all over the papers, but it was Pelosi's appointment of the commission that will oversee the $2 trillion stimulus oh. money. And I think the most interesting appointees to this commission is Majority Whip Jim Clyburn and... Chairwoman of the um, House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters. And the reason why you watched those two is because the impact of the coronavirus had such a disproportionate impact on African-Americans. Yes. It we be to see yes. how those two take on this role and what type of oversight they're, you, they're looking to provide to, the, to this Treasury Department, to the IRS, the Small Business Administration, on um, how they doled out the money that went to small businesses and also the money that's going to the American pool. Well, and what we're seeing here is bigger businesses have claimed billions of dollars in sort of this PP, this this paycheck protection money. Whereas in small businesses, some of them are still waiting to hear back from their bank if they qualify for a PPP loan.
3: Uh-huh. Indeed. That's a very, going to be very interesting to watch. And by the way, you know, we've already seen, um, the way some of this money has been distributed has raised a lot of questions. And some of the big companies now are being asked to give their money back. Kind of embarrassing for Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, And Scott Wong, uh, your favorite story?
4: Well, hey, a, a little bit of good news. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Michelle and I welcome the new baby into the world in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic.
3: Wonderful, uh, wonderful. Evan, uh, little Impressed. Evan,
4: was born on April eighth, and just happens to share a birthday with one Bill Press.
3: All right, <laughs> my gl- God,
4: I'm, that's
0: I- so happy.
3: I'm happy to share my birthday with Evan.
4: (laughs) Let me me tell a quick story real quick. Uh, At the hospital, obviously a very unnerving experience because all the doctors and nurses are taking precautions. They're wearing face shields and plastic aprons and gloves. Um, My wife, giving birth, was immediately tested upon getting to Sibley, and uh, she got a COVID test back in three hours. Fortunately, uh, it was a negative test, but... Uh, somebody later told me after the fact, so you're saying if you want to get tested for COVID, all you have to do is to get pregnant and to give birth to a child.
3: Yeah. Uh, uh the difficulties I have heard from a lot of people about getting tested, including our good friend Hunter Walker, we we'll have to pass, pass along that advice, Scott. Very good. Um, well, I'm almost ashamed of my favorite story of the week, but I did find it funny and, um. Uh, Uh, So here goes, you know, we have heard um, a lot about businesses that have been very badly impacted by the uh, pandemic, certainly uh, big retail stores and grocery stores uh, and restaurants. Well, they're not alone. I mean, I am uh, currently rereading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's great novel, Love in the Time of Cholera. But apparently, there's not a lot, a lot of love in the time of the coronavirus because one of the industries that's been severely impacted by the coronavirus worldwide are manufacturers of condoms. Yes, indeed, not a lot of love in the time of the coronavirus. Uh, and the headlines that I saw on this story, uh, you can imagine people let their imagination go wild. One headline was, condom sales go limp. Uh, The other was condom sales flaccid. Um, When this turns around and condom sales pop back up, I can't wait to see what the new headlines are going to be. So, Just leave it at that for now. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Addie Baird from BuzzFeed. Thank you so much. Addie, how can people follow you?
0: You can find me on Twitter at Addie S. Baird.
3: At Abby Addie S. Baird. Scott Wong, thank you from the Hill. How do people follow you, Scott? Find me on Twitter at Scott Wong DC. All right. And Richard Fowler, the Richard Fowler show, you see him on Fox News too. Richard, where do people catch up
2: with you? It's the same on Instagram and Twitter uh, at Richard A. Fowler.
3: At Richard A. Fowler. Thank you, Addie. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Richard. And thank you all for joining us today. It's so good to have you on board for the Bill Press Roundtable. And we ask you to just do us a big favor if you haven't already done so. Please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Just go to wherever you're listening to this podcast, pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. And then tell your friends to do the same. And please, Follow me on Twitter as well as Addie and Scott and Richard, and I'm on Twitter at BillPressPod at BillPressPod. That's it for this episode of the Bill Press Pod and our roundtable for today. Thanks for thanks again for joining us. Stay strong, stay safe. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.